This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 321. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Phone lines open, 888-900-3393. Really appreciate you making the time. Best part of my day, every day. Chilling with y'all. That's right, I said y'all in the Freedom Hut. So thank you for being here. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, Trump news, Trump administration in waiting. He's not even president yet, but... Not hearing a lot about Obama. I think Obama's feeling a little left out. So he's giving a speech today on his counterterrorism policy because he wants people to pay attention to him. Uh, We can talk a bit about that. And also, I might just get get into the weeds with you uh, somewhat on what's going on in in Mosul, a city I know uh, well. And maybe one day I'll get the permission to talk to you about how how well I know that city. But I try to avoid the eye of Sauron from the federal government and talking too much about some of these things. So there you have it. You can read between the lines on that one. But yeah, Mosul's a, Mosul's a hellhole. Uh, certainly now was before as well. We'll get there. Uh, we've got a lot of fantastic guests today. I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of these days where, like I am fond of telling you, we've got about five hours of show and three hours of time. So we'll see what we can do. First, I wanted to start out, if I could, uh, with... Uh, the news that is not going to get as much attention, I think, in, in the press as it should. Um, but it ties into some of the broader themes that we're seeing play out in this country with Trumpism and the repudiation of the elites, or at least the elites' view of things like multiculturalism and a sort of globalist worldview. And it is Angela Merkel. Yeah, guten Tag. Angela is always just going around Germany making sure that that everything is, you know, precise and the trains run on the time and it's very clean streets. Uh, I guess she does other things than make sure the streets are clean, but you know what I'm saying. She governs with the precision of a Swiss watch. I guess she's German. Now I'm really messing things up. I'm mixing metaphors or just mixing up my countries. Uh, Angela Merkel has said today that she supports a nationwide ban on full face veils worn by Muslim women, the so-called burqa ban. And 
Now, a few things on this. Um, I, I see a lot, a lot going on here. There, there's, first of all, the rightness or wrongness of a burqa ban, which we'll talk about. There's the about face you're seeing here from Merkel, whom last year was uh, sort of snarkily referred to by some online as uh, nationalism's woman of the year because she allowed a million uh, Muslim refugees into Germany with very little. This whole notion, by the way, that, there, that there's vetting of refugees that come from war zones, this is essentially a, a preposterous. Always keep that in mind. Right? People say, oh, no, they're vetted. There's all these vetting programs. There's so much vetting. No, they show up they, with the clothes on their backs, and they say, this is what happened to me, and people are sympathetic, and people, I think, generally want to be good and helpful to their fellow human beings. I'd like to think so. That's a whole separate show, whether that's true or not. But you have a million refugees showed up, and some members of the Islamic State use that refugee flow to penetrate the country. There have been numerous mass casualty terrorist attacks in Europe coinciding with this outflow of refugees from the Syrian civil war, uh, as well as from North Africa, mostly from Libya, into European, uh, into European states. And there have also been many plots that are thwarted. And I always think that those get much less attention than they should, right? We, it's a, a usually a, a page C7 news item when you know, five uh, refugees of Syrian descent are found you know, with bomb-making materials and the plans to destroy you know, three schools in Hamburg or something. People, oh, I'm glad our counterterrorism services caught that one. Yeah, me too. But a society doesn't want to constantly live on the precipice of catastrophic terror and, and horrific violence inflicted upon it for its own goodness, right? For the taking in of refugees or for its multicultural ethic, which whether that's a good or not is also something that we will discuss. Um, but what's interesting, if you look at you know human history, you go back quite a ways. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for disparate cultures living side by side in harmony, right? There's plenty of evidence for people of different, uh, different skin colors or people of different uh, ethnic origins who subscribe to similar ideology. They can live peacefully together, right? The same ideology, the same culture. Yeah, they can live peacefully together. So that, that's the good news. The bad news is that uh, deeply disparate cultures and deeply disparate political ideologies don't mix very well. This is there, there's not a lot of evidence that this is going to turn out well. And when you look at, for example, uh, and this is so on the one side of it, we can be happy that the problem is not uh, one of uh, the, what, what leads to conflict historically is not ethnicity or race. It is much more often creed ideology and idea, right? What people believe, what they think should be the governing philosophy for their day-to-day -day lives, whether it's religious-based or it's based in the state, whether we're talking about totalitarianism, communism, or we're talking about uh, religious wars. Um, there are multi-ethnic societies that do very well, plenty of them, right? I'm not saying there's, of course, there's always conflict among people, you know, and there, and there are singularly, uh, or there are sort of uh, unipolar ethnic societies that don't do well, right? I mean, look at the Irish and the English uh, going going at it over Northern Ireland, and people say, oh, well, there's a religious difference. I mean, not a big one. Uh, so, but the, the notion that you can have 
cultures that are in direct opposition to each other living side by side. That's where things get more complicated. That's where I think you'd have to really stretch to find an example of peaceful, long-term, peaceful and prosperous coexistence. Like I said, you can have a multi-ethnic society, people of different races, uh, ethnicities, creeds, uh, getting along fine. This country, uh, this country at least for a period of time, you could say, I know people would say, oh, but look at the legacy of slavery. I totally understand. Very valid point. Uh, but this country, certainly in the post-World War II, post-civil rights era, uh, is an example. Uh, there are others where people of different, and, I, and it's America, of course, we're talking in the context of a country where you have people from all over the world. I mean, we are uh, not unique in that sense entirely. There are European countries with lots of people of different ethnic origins and backgrounds who are living together peacefully and in and, and a prosperous fashion. But there has to be something. And I think this is a thesis that I'm trying to get to here. Uh, there has to be something that binds everyone together. You know, in this country, it's the Constitution. It's the rule of law. It's a sort of reverence or at least a, a, a basic respect for the American founding and what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, what it is to be an American, which in and of itself is a broad uh, a broad question that I think a lot of people would have different answers to. But there's some basics to it that I think we would largely agree upon. So you look at Germany. Um, and, and by the way, I've talked to you before about Orwell and how he talks about what really makes an Englishman an Englishman. And he had a few sort of anecdotal, but I think very poignant, uh, poignant things that he wrote in, uh, in, in a series of essays about how, you know, an Englishman will always take the position um, that the, the law matters, right? Rule of law in all circumstances is a very, he thought was a very sort of English trait. Now he's writing in the 1940s, but, and I think Americans would believe that that's true, too, and that even the lowliest among the British people and the, the highest in the House of Lords was still governed by some law. Right. That's a particularly English trait. Uh, you look at Germany now and what is happening in Germany. And there are questions being asked about, OK, what are the boundaries? What are the outer limits of tolerance for this sort of multi multicultural, remember, not multi-ethnic, multicultural society that Germany is not just sort of embracing, but is, is in many ways uh, holds itself up as kind of the epitome of what this is and what this, what this couldn't be. And there has been an enormous backlash to this. Right. I, I th and when you think about this, it, it makes sense in a lot of different contexts. You, you see uh, people who speak the same language, who have the same uh, general aspirations in their day-to-day -day lives, uh, speaking the same language, by the way, is is very important, uh, but share basic cultural traits, and, you know, they tend to get along. And uh, the good news, I think, uh, returning to, to an earlier idea, is that, you know, racism isn't just evil, but it's also irrational, right? So if you see somebody and you say, I'm going to make a judgment based upon the color of your skin that's not based in any reality right that is in fact just a sort of instinctual uh or a a a hatred that comes out of a sort of a reactionary mindset right the other uh, but when somebody shows up and they say well you have your way of living but i actually have this other very different way of approaching life i see things quite differently than you do in fact 
I have my way of living and I think you should adopt it. That tends to get people uh, that tends to get people in opposition to each other. That can be a situation that spurs conflict. Right. And what you see in Germany isn't uh, at least I, I believe, but we're talking about Germany and obviously Germany has a very dark history when it comes to these things, which also, of course, influences the way that it, uh, you know, re- it deals with these things today. But what you have is a society that has opened itself up, or at least the elites have opened themselves up to a large influx of people who may or may not. And I think in the aggregate, there's an argument to be made that uh, may not is probably the more accurate description share these basic attitudes about daily life, share a sort of civilizational outlook, right? And now I could get into Huntington's, Huntington's uh, class of, a clash of civilizations and how today what we're seeing play out in, in Germany with this conversation is really just an extension of that. Uh, somebody who wears a full burqa is overwhelmingly, but not always, going to have a very different view of a whole bunch of things in day-to-day life, including rule of law, the rights of women, the rights of, of uh, you know, w- within a family, legal rights, inheritance rights, uh, all sorts of things. It's going to have a different point of view than a, you know, a sort of upper middle class, uh, college, university educated German engineer of any ethnic background. Right. This, is, this is what you see happening. I mean, you could have the South Asian immigrant to Germany who has a Ph.D. and is largely, let's say, largely adopted the sort of secular German attitude towards a lot of things, completely integrated into German society and everything is fine. But you have somebody who shows up who wants to wear a full burqa head to toe. And it not it's not just a security issue, which it which it is. You should be able to see people's faces. And this is a long established uh, this is a, a long-established precept in a lot of places for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but also it's, it signifies a, an adherence to an interpretation of Islam that is at odds with Western liberal society, period. And that's what Germany's recognizing right now, or at least Angela Merkel is giving lip service to. I, how much she believes it, I don't really know. How much this is just her trying to sort of save herself politically after what seemed to be a disastrous decision to, I mean, a, a million refugees for Germany, that's a lot. A lot of people that need care and feeding, that's a lot of uh, deep psychological trauma and wounds uh, that need to be addressed. And I'm sure the German people feel like, first of all, they're already paying the bills for their neighbors to the south in Greece and such. They're, they're paying the bills for other Europeans already. The idea that they should take on all these refugees and that the German people weren't consulted, it was just uh, Angela Merkel making this decision, their chancellor. Um, that, by the way, whenever I say chancellor, I think of isn't it like Chancellor Palpatine? Isn't that the guy from Star Wars? Right, chancellor sounds like quite a quite a title, a grandiose title. Um, she has realized, I think, that the German people aren't with her on this issue, um, and meaning that a, a completely a, a an open society has to be open to those who are completely intolerant. A multicultural society has to lie down and not put up a fight against cultures and against cultural ideas and and mores that are in direct conflict with the home country's culture. This is this is where they finally tested the outer limits here. And I think she's realized that Germany, that the German people are in line with the French who have had this in place for a long time. And I think, by the way, to their credit, 
the Belgians, uh, the Bulgarians, uh, the Swiss, the Italians, they all have some form of, quote, burqa ban in place. And it's about a lot more than just not allowing a garment to be worn. There's a, there's much more than that. That's not just at, uh, sort of symbolized here, but that's at stake in this conversa- uh, conversation, in this discussion. And I want to get into what that also means for us here and how it plays out here in just a few minutes. 888-900-3393. Phone lines are open. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. You know, beetroot juice was used by Olympic athletes for its stamina-boosting effects and it caused waves at the last Olympics. Clinical studies prove that two glasses of beetroot juice per day could increase stamina by 16%. Now, here's some key facts you should know about. Beet juice is rich in nitrates, which help muscles use oxygen more efficiently. And if you want to get beets without having to actually eat beets, your best option is super beets. It's better than regular beets and beet juice because super beets are specially grown, non-GMO, and protected by a light drying process, which is also the secret to why it tastes so darn good. I feel confident offering this to you, Team Buck, because I take Super Beats, and I think they are delicious, and they give me quite an energy boost every time. Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order, and it's backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you'll feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, or go to teambuckbeats.com. So back on this burger. You know, Merkel signifies a lot here because, one, uh, she's trying to reposition herself politically because she has shown herself to be a sort of out-of-touch globalist elite, even to Europeans, which is saying something. Uh, and the consequences of her policy of a, a sort of completely open-ended uh, multiculturalism and treating the German taxpayer as though they have an obligation to sort of foot the bill for whomever wants to come, uh, that has consequences. Uh, 
and the distaste that I think a lot of ordinary people have in this country for the elites is based on very similar grounds. We are told that any sort of opposition to taking in large numbers of refugees is rooted in racism, or we are told that any uh, imposed actual uh, limitations on immigration that are enforced are the result of xenophobia, and we are told that, in fact, the people who are coming here, particularly those who are coming here illegally, are in some way better, harder working, more deserving than Americans who are here. That said, and it's unchallenged all the time, you know, they're doing the jobs Americans won't do and uh, just want to come and contribute. I guess all these Americans, all these tens of millions of Americans that are out of the labor force just don't want to contribute somehow. They just have no interest. They just want to kind of sit on their hands. Uh, but the separation between the people that make decisions like the Merkels of the world and, yes, the sort of Pelosi's and the Clintons and the Obama's um, as to who gets to stay and what the reasons are for allowing them to stay. And those of us who not only pay the bills, but also live in the communities where immigrants, uh, particularly immigrants of the sort of refugee uh, variety, live, have to deal with what that actually means, what that assimilation process can be like, and what the costs are on school systems and in terms of crime and even just things like English as a second language classes and all of that. Um, To have a discussion about this and to talk about something that is, say, I don't know, an American culture, a culture that we can all share, but that is a real thing that should be shared, that shouldn't be off limits. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's take some callers. Richard in Washington. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Yeah, hi, Buck. Thanks. Uh, like I told your screen call uh, call screener, when did immigration and immigrants start coming out of the federal budget? There was a time when immigrants and immigration had to pay for itself. Now it's a line item in the in the budget. Hmm. Um, I didn't even know that, to be honest with you. Well, so what's the difference? The, the difference is what exactly? I mean, explain. I, did, I, I don't know this distinction. Well, there was a time when immigrants came into the country legally one at a time, and they couldn't come in unless they had a job lined up and or a sponsor, and it would not displace an American worker. But now we have immigrants coming in, getting off the plane, getting their uh what their their food stamps their section 8 vouchers and medicaid cards and turn them loose uh, well yeah the, the the parts of our immigration history that the public um is ignorant of are are there's many of them. there are many parts of it for example that one out of three immigrants that came here in the early 20th century returned to their home countries because they just couldn't hack it here and it was just too hard uh, because there was no option to just go on the dole. There was no option to get federal benefits. And people say, oh, well, immigrants can't access federal benefits. Uh, that's not true. Uh, first of all, they do well, illegally in many, many cases. Uh, and anybody who's lived in an immigrant 
heavy area, we'll talk about what it's like to go to an ER, which is essentially health care for, in, in some places, the illegal immigrant community. Um, this was, by the way, told to us when they were trying to get Obamacare through. This was something they were willing to discuss then and, and discuss openly because it served their purposes. But now to bring it up, I'm sure, is bigoted or racist or mean or, or whatever. Look, Ang- Angela Merkel, back to this uh, face veil ban situation, uh, a so-called burqa ban. But it's really a face veil ban. Uh, I mean, the burqa... Uh, we've talked about this before, but just by way of <laughs> team, by way of review, uh, the burqa is what you see in primarily uh, in Afghanistan, Pakistan. So it's generally a South, a South Asian garment and it covers everything. And there's actually gauze across the eyes. I mean, if you go on Google Images and, and search, you know, burqa, you'll see the you see exactly what I'm talking about. And then there's variations on it. There's a niqab, which is a face veil, but doesn't have gauze over the eyes, but it covers the entirety of the head and the face. And all you can see is essentially the exposed eyes and, and the bridge of the nose. Uh, there's uh, a shador, which is like a long coat in, uh, in Iran. There's the abaya, which is a full body covering, but it does not cover the face, which is what is uh, in many cases worn in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's sort of this long black, um, you know, again, the best thing to do is to go on Google Images and you'll see what I'm talking about. It it can cover, I mean, it, it can cover the face as well if you add a niqab to it, right? So uh, you get the full black head-to-toe covering there. Um, but the abaya does not necessarily cover the face the way that the burqa does. The burqa has a gauze strip. Like there's no, there's no show my face option when I'm wearing a burqa. You know what I mean? There's no like, oh, it's party time. I got this burqa. Let's, let's rip this gauze off. Let's rip this gauze off and rock this party. It doesn't work like that. Uh, so those are, those are all variations. And the hijab is just uh, Arabic for head covering for women. And in many cases, that's just a, a scarf, a scarf that is sort of similar to uh, what you'd see in even some Christian Orthodox Eastern European countries referred to as a, um, I, I don't think it's officially called a babushka, which I think means grandmother in Polish. Um, but that's kind of the, the vibe. You get what I'm saying? A peasant headscarf uh, in many countries that are non-Muslim sort of looks a little bit like a a hijab or has a similar vibe to it. Okay. So you, you get into the, the various levels in this. I mean, first of all, I'm always fascinated to see the people that are willing to just just immediately and reflexively defend uh, someone's right to dress like a beekeeper. And then you would say, well, what, what about walking around dressed as, as a Klansman? And they'd say, oh, that's a hate crime. OK, so you can't walk around and cover your face and dress as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, that's terrible. But you can walk around wearing what exactly? I mean, is a, is a burqa supposed to be a symbol of tolerance and, and willingness to integrate and assimilation? I mean, does anybody really believe that? I, I don't think so. I think we're all quite aware of the fact that the burqa is a very potent symbol of um, I'm not going to, uh, I, I am unwilling to make the very basic uh, accommodations and uh, choices necessary to integrate into a liberal Western society. Right. It's, it's quite clearly, at least to me, quite clearly uh, intended to separate and also to demean it. And then you get into the question about whether or not it even is something that's done voluntarily. And people will say, oh, well, we've done these polls of women. It's all done voluntarily. Well, I mean, there's voluntary. And then there's when I get home, if I'm not wearing this, my you know husband might beat me or somebody on the street 
in my neighborhood may harass me or, or you know, in some cases throw acid on women. I mean, the stuff that happens as a result of this is horrible. It's also considered a moral choice, a moral distinction for the women that do it. And therefore, those that don't do it, um, they are making an immoral choice. And remember, Islam, when it comes to these issues, doesn't make distinctions between believers and non-believers. Same is true with the drawing of the uh, drawing of Muhammad. Doesn't matter if you're a non-Muslim, you are uh, a you're guilty of blasphemy for jihadists, at least, and for Islamists, punishable by death if you mock the Prophet Muhammad. It doesn't matter if you're not a member of the faith. Does anyone really think that those who are part of that section of Islam that think that women should dress in the full beekeeper burqa outfit, that those women walking around this country wearing blue jeans and, and T-shirts are, that that's okay? That this is a live and let live ideology? I mean, anyone who thinks that's deluding themselves. Right? The mindset is that those women are dressed essentially as harlots, that they are uh, morally suspect and they are morally corrupted. And it's just a matter of time and having the numbers before the, the burqa is a forced choice. Right? It's, it's, this, is, this is where the, the debate always sort of, sort of breaks down for me. People don't seem to understand that those who wear a burqa don't want to just wear a burqa and be left alone. They want to wear a burqa now, but they're hoping in the future that everybody's got to wear a burqa. And anyone who has an honest conversation with somebody who wears one all the time, uh, that's the answer you're going to get if they're having an honest conversation. Maybe not. Maybe there's some other stuff going on there. Uh, I also have to note that you're seeing some of the pushback on this to be that there's not that there are not that many women in Germany that wear a full burqa. Uh, isn't it fascinating? You know, the left in this country will pick obscure issues or issues, I should say, that impact very few people uh the use of transgender student usage of bathrooms is a perfect example of this or uh evangelical cake makers another example of this right and they'll find this and they realize that there's a symbolism to the issue and they will just blow it up it's a national news story obama weighs in the white house is involved federal law wall-to-wall coverage um but doesn't matter to them that this is something that affects a very small slice of the population i mean how many transgendered students are really being denied proper bathroom usage in their eyes or you know whatever i mean what are the numbers we're really talking about here and the number is quite small i don't even know what it is i just know it's small so when people say they there's no official number of how many women in germany wear a burqa but they say it's quite small well that doesn't really matter right because it's about symbolism here Merkel, of course, is is playing politics with this. She's a politician. That's not surprising. She's running for her fourth time as as chancellor of Germany and realizes that this is a way to perhaps set things right with at least some who are slightly more conservative or slightly more traditional uh, in their view of what Germany is and what Germany should support. So this is just. This is, I mean, I think it is pandering for Merkel, and it's a, it's a, my understanding is a reversal of her previous position on this. Um, but Europe is having these discussions, and America is having these discussions. And this notion that there's a sweeping populism and a nationalism, I think of the cover of The Economist was sort of the new nationalism, and there's, they've got these different figures from around the world. Uh, it, isn't it fascinating that? A return to the way things were, meaning nation states that have a particular culture, that have borders, that have uh, 
a a political outlook that is specific to those who live within within its borders and um, that a return to that is considered to be so strange when I mean how long have we really been living in this uh, really leftist collectivist delusion that the world is sort of all becoming one country and the best thing would be if we're all under one government and the best thing would be if everything was sort of multilateral and done by international consensus and no, and that's really the aberration. This is what I find so fascinating about this this moment in time, um, that the United States should subordinate uh, should subordinate some of its interest to the, the will of international bodies, whether it's the UN or the International Criminal Court or any number of things. And these are very new ideas that have been wholeheartedly embraced by. When we say the elites, we can spe- specify who we're talking about: uh, political leadership, the super wealthy, not the well-off, the super wealthy, and those who shape opinion and, as we see increasingly, also become politicians, right, the media. Uh, They have overwhelmingly bought into this idea that everybody is – everyone wants the same things and everyone should get the same things. And the only way that's going to happen is if people like them, meaning the elites, are in charge. Uh, and their view of governance, their view of governance, their view of data of day to day life uh, is deeply influenced by this. It's true of the Democratic Party in this country, the sort of Pelosi's and Clinton's and Obama's and Schumer's. And and it's true in the European context as well. And I know that we're, I'm painting with a really broad brush here, but we're talking about the globe. We're talking about the world. We're talking about the Western world. So it's going to be a little broad. There is a trend that's happening here. And it's interesting to me because the same way that. The Democrats refuse to see what happened in the last election for what it really was. Uh, European leadership is beginning, I think, to wake up to the irritation of their populations at many of these uh, many of these policies and the sort of lack of um, identity that people crave from their country. People want to have an identity that is a national set in identity. Look, the communists ran into this problem. Uh, because for a long time that they were pushing this idea of sort of, you know, the international and there is be this worker's paradise. But as much as people maybe liked this notion of uh, workers of the world uniting in concept, people also wanted to maintain some sense of you know, they wanted to be a German communist. They wanted to be a French communist. They wanted to be an American communist. I mean, they liked that sense of identity. There was something more than just the baseline political ideology, there were, there was a, a desire to belong, to have a sort of almost tribal sense of belonging. And that there's something of a return to that now is a return to the way things have been for a very long time. Uh, when you start to look at the cosmopolitanist, uh, yeah, dare I say it, globalist view of how government should operate, this has only been around for a few decades and it is an untried experiment. And no one's saying that it's all being thrown out and abandoned and we're going to sort of return to some state of anarchy where it's uh, uh, Habesian, you know, every state against every state. And no, but people like to live in countries that they feel like they identify with and that they have an identity in and that identity should be protected and that identity should mean something and the polity should try to reproduce certain norms and certain values, whether it's Dutch or you know French or German or American or whatever. And there's this revulsion from the elites as a result of this. Like this is some sort of huge surprise to them. 
And I just think it's interesting to ask the question, why is this surprising? The alternative, actually, that that would go smoothly and everything would work out just fine. That would be the surprise. All right, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's pretty amazing that uh, Donald Trump can uh, create a major item in the news cycle with his Twitter account. You know, as I sit around sometimes and I realize I can do a lot of uh, prep for the show. I mean, I, you know, I've got a, what is an iPhone 6. I mean, it's like a tiny TV in my pocket. I mean, all of us can do so much and we carry this around with us. And, and I wonder sometimes, you know, we, I don't think we take enough of the, uh, the drawbacks into consideration with a lot of this. I think sometimes we find ourselves just being like, oh, it's so convenient. Yeah, but there's also no escape. But Trump tweeted out uh, that Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but costs are out of control. More than $4 billion. Cancel the order. That was like this morning. He just decided to uh, let that rip. Um, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, uh, where did that come from? And it's not something that Trump had ever mentioned before. Uh, I don't, I don't know where that, what that really is, but it, it turns into a major, a major news item. Um, and you've got Donald Trump able to go outside of the sort of established channels. I mean, just with his Twitter account. I feel like Donald Trump is responsible probably for a spike in Twitter stock just because he single-handedly has turned it into the preferred mass communication tool of the next president of the United States. It's really remarkable when you think about it that way. Uh, but here he is. He he creates a, a big discussion now over the future of Air Force One and how it should be built and who should build it and what the cost should be and everything else that's going on. So I'm... I find this very interesting uh, anyway that he can do this. Um, I'll get into this maybe a bit more in the second hour. We're going to talk a bit about the nuclear option in the Senate and some other very interesting stuff. 888-900-3393 team. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. 